You've heard the joke, what if somebody threw a party but nobody came? Well, what would happen to racehorses in training if there's no party at all? What will happen to them if there's a spike this year in the number who are retired? We'll ask a leader in the field of thoroughbred aftercare on this edition of In the Gate. They're in the gates. They're about to move in. They roll sack. And they're off. As they move to the top of the straight, it's a hit-bombing finish! This is In The Gate, ESPN's Thoroughbred Racing Podcast. My name is Barry Abrams. You can follow me on Twitter at B. Abrams Voice or on Facebook at Barry Abrams Voice. You can also get us on our YouTube channel by searching In The Gate Podcast. You can find us on Stitcher, SoundCloud, TuneIn, the Pink Apple Podcatcher app, and of course in the Listen tab of the ESPN app. For the full In The Gate experience, subscribe now in the Listen tab of the ESPN app. And please take a minute to rate and review the show. Those reviews really help others find us. And with the time now to reflect, maybe the folks at America's Best Racing will remember that we're here when it comes time for their awards this November. Not only that, but in the racing podcast space, we were here first. With just a few tracks continuing to run races due to the coronavirus shutdown and no clear timetable for when the world will return to normal, there are a lot of owners who are unsure when they'll get to run their horses again. And shutdown or no shutdown, the horses still require care and training. It can cost somewhere between $2,000 and $5,000 a month to care for a horse when you're talking about food, bedding, shoes, trainer fees, and everything else that goes into a horse's care. How much will this shutdown affect the rate at which horses are retired and need to be rehomed? That's a topic for one of the foremost aftercare organizations in the United States, the Thoroughbred Aftercare Alliance. And we welcome TAA President John Phillips here to In the Gate for the first time. What sense do you get about how many more horses than usual here in the United States will be retired based on not having places to run during this shutdown? Well, that's actually a really good question. And it has, interestingly enough, some pretty clear and, I think, favorable answers. Uh, First of all, we have not seen a significant surge in horses being uh, tendered for retirement to TAA facilities. We've done some informal polling, and of course, we're keeping in constant contact with all our partners in, you know, 150 facilities and 60-some organizations, and there has not to date been any particular surge. Now, that could change, But at this point, there hasn't been, which is interesting. I think one of the big advantages and perhaps one of the reasons for that is the time of year. If this were November, December, I would be very, very concerned. But there is a large segment of the racing population, as I'm sure you can understand, that were actually in preparation for the summer and fall meets, in particular turf racing, really, except for the South, doesn't really get going until later in the year anyway. So there, I think most of the horses that we've seen were actually in preparation for a full campaign as opposed to at the other end of campaign. So that, that I think, I hate to say we were lucky in that regard, but I think, in fact, we have been. The other interesting thing about it that is a little bit different from retirement 
is that we are really dealing now with horses, should they owners or trainers be in that position, are being retired for economic reasons as opposed to physical reasons. And that might seem a subtle distinction, but it's a very important one because horses that are sound, that are not significantly injured or arthritic or in some way incapable of moving on to another career can move through the process reasonably quickly. Now, there are a number of organizations, as you know, there are two fundamental types of organizations, essentially one retraining and the other sanctuary. So what we have here is pressure on more than the sanctuary situation, the retraining situation. Those facilities, as a rule, can move through and accommodate more horses much more quickly. And we've been touching base with those. And we have seen a little bit of an upsurge, but not in any significant way, which I, I think is uh, very helpful. The TAA has been um, reviewing their inventory capacity. We are working on triage Obviously, certain areas would be more inclined than other areas to to have that sort of surge in uh, participants to aftercare, and so we we are working and developing triage practices and locations in a sense with various racetracks. The Strana Group has been very helpful in that regard, so we're being forced here to be creative, but it's a good thing. I think really one of our biggest concerns is actually not so much the horses because people at this time of year have most of their horses in condition to run and hopefully will be able to run later part of the year, but is frankly the workforce that deal with the horses, whether they're in retraining or sanctuary or at the track. It's imperative that the workforce that keeps and maintains these horses is healthy. So... There are a lot of different things that are happening all at the same time, of course, and I would say that one of the responses that we have had, the TAA has had, is a release of funds. We give, of course, we do accrediting, which is a very extensive and very elaborate process to make sure that all our facilities are maintained as 5013C organizations have an inventory, have facilities that are appropriate, have uh, governance that is maintained well, all of these things to assure that accredited facilities do their job at, at a very high acceptable level. But our second mission, and this is where I was getting to, is to help fund those organizations. And we have two funding periods as a rule. At the end of the year, in December, and uh, May 1st. Because of the scenario, and we sense some, and in certain areas a lot, of apprehension about the stability of racing and this concern about a surge, that we went ahead and accelerated the time frame for our mid-year disbursement of funds. So I signed about uh, just under $2 million worth of checks to go out to accredited TAA facilities, which is 45 days ahead of where we would normally have issued those checks. 
All right, there's a lot there that I want to unpack one by one. <laughs> sure. Uh, let's okay. start with what you just talked about. In addition to that almost $2 million worth of grants, how is the TAA, as an example for all of the many aftercare organizations out there, preparing for a potential swell of retirees? And, of course, that could happen. So we are in the process of inventorying where the allocation, where those horses could be sent if need be. The other thing that we've done, and this was fortuitous, but it is not necessarily in anticipation of this precise situation, we have shifted very aggressively in the last two years to sustainable funding programs. I think we have the ability to expand, not perhaps threefold, but certainly the ability to expand facilities. What we need to have is the ability to fund those facilities properly to maintain the proper care. In anticipation of that issue, although, again, not in anticipation of this precise crisis, the TAA has really pursued sustainable funding, and within its own mechanism of financial discipline, has developed a reserve fund to take care of crisis situations. Such was the case when the hurricane hit down in Puerto Rico or the fire out west. Now we're dealing with a magnitude significantly greater because this is a potential issue that's nationwide. But fortunately, we have dedicated a certain percentage of our funds to uh, have a reserve. That reserve was at its max because we're not in the business of retaining a lot of funds. Our goal is to distribute funds out to the organizations. So we were at our max, but that does allow us to make these distributions and increase certain distributions should the crisis demand more funding for expansion of facilities. John Phillips, president of the Thoroughbred Aftercare Alliance, is with us here on In the Gate. What inroads have been made in the private sector? You know, the TAA is, of course, a 501c3, you know, to help pick up the extra slack. Well, you know, I'm not, I'm not as versed in the private sector uh, as, as I am in the TAA. However, I do know that the Jockey Club, for example has doubled down on its funding in the TIP program, which is the Thoroughbred Incentive Program. Now, I think it's brilliant. The goal was to create an incentive to absorb more horses in the private market. Of course, we all know there's a really significant private market that is a for-profit venture by lots of people who obtain thoroughbreds coming off the track and then retrain them for purposes of resale, for purposes of profit. To that end, we, that is the Jockey Club, creates this incentive program, and it's funded, I think, at a level of 300000 although I'm not sure. But in a, in a sense, that the point is not to create a huge system of purses for private competitions or show competitions or hunter-jumpers or uh, the like. But in order for somebody who is used to getting a ribbon to actually get a ribbon and maybe a check for $1,000 or $1,500, that has been an interesting response and an attempt to spur the private market on by the jockey club. And they've coordinated that. Of course, they've been instrumental also in creating sustainable funding through 
the uh, RMB fee, which is every broodmare that, that gets bred pays $25 to an aftercare fund, as well as every foal that gets a registration t- certificate pays $25 to an aftercare fund, all going through the TAA, and it's how we are able to accumulate. The other thing I think I should mention it's not necessarily the show horse sector, but it's, it's how we are attempting to incorporate more of the touch points of thoroughbreds. There are, for example, NYTHA has been great because, you know, the breeders and the stallion and the mare owners all make these contributions. And, of course, you've seen where Fasic Tipton and Keeneland have gone to a mandatory funding process, which I think philosophically is good because it's basically saying, look, this is the obligation of the sport. This is the obligation of the industry that we have. It is a cost of doing business. Aftercare is something that we are responsible for, that we must maintain, we must increase. And I really appreciate Keeneland and Fasic Tipton for saying, no, it's not an option. It is like the necessity of buying insurance for the sport. So we have those sustainable funds, but we are working with, for example, horsemen's groups. And I mentioned NYTHA. They instituted just this past year a program where the claiming ranks, who did not really participate, obviously, in the breeding or the selling process, had not participated at all in contributions into aftercare. And so now NYTHA has agreed to institute a claiming fee that is a percentage of the amount of the claim made. So that segment, and we need to take that broader than just NYTHA, it needs to go across the country. But all of those segments we have to solicit funds for and do so in a sustainable way so that it's not a contribution. It's not a aftercare can't be an afterthought. It must be a part of our business psyche that this is something we must do. We're trying not only the private sector and large corporate entities such as the racetracks and the like and institutions such as the jockey club and the like, but we're also trying very hard to get smaller aspects of the industry involved in this process as well. We're going to take a short break here on In the Gate, but when we come back, why is it that younger horses are easier to place than older ones? And what effect will recently passed government money and tax breaks for small businesses have on whether horses stay in training? Don't go away. John Phillips, president of the Thoroughbred Aftercare Alliance, is with us here on In the Gate. Well, you talked about the equestrian world. I mean, I have to believe that they are affected by this shutdown every bit as much as the racing world is. So how has that affected your rehoming efforts? Well, it's too early to tell, to be quite honest with you. Uh, obviously, if, if this thing can wave, can pass within four or five months, uh, I think we'll be fine. The The love of horses uh, certainly isn't a temporary feeling. It's something that's with you for a long, long time. I'm sure there might be some issues as we continue. And indeed, nobody knows where this situation is going to go and the sort of unanticipated ramifications that it may have. Truly, if it goes for six months or a year, we're, we're going to have different issues. And you're quite right in assuming that every aspect 
of uh, the equine world will be affected by this. Hopefully we can get control of it and with the new funding, uh, sustainable funding, the accelerated effort with which we're uh, looking at our capacity and uh, triaging horses to those areas of capacity, we can be able to get through this wave. I also wanted to get back to something that you said earlier. I made a mental note to do this because there's so much here, and that was how you said younger horses who are sound and full of energy are easier to move through. My instinct would say that they're a little more stubborn, that they're harder to handle. Why are they easier to move through the system? Well, let me let me sort of correct myself there. It's not so much that they're younger horses. It's that the training resume hadn't hadn't built up on them yet. It's they're less prone to injury uh, because they have not been in work for an extended period of time. So what I'm suggesting is that a, you know an arthritic horse or a horse that has got a bowed tendon or blown suspensory, for example, as a result of extensive training or perhaps competition. That horse is harder to get back in the recycle of a second career than a horse who's just been stopped because the owner says, look, there's no racing. I don't see us going into competition, into the income stream anytime soon, so I'm going to back off of this uh, horse and and uh, find an alternative career form. What I'm suggesting is is that he is just healthier and more sound, and hasn't been subjected to extensive training and competition. All horses need breaks at, at a time, and and we haven't come into the peak of our season yet, so those horses are still relatively fresh. And it, it's not necessarily. You know, a young horse versus an old horse, it's it's where a horse is in his current training and the level of competition that he's been experiencing. Speaking of the financials, the latest economic recovery bills passed by the federal government provide numerous different ways either to put cash in the pockets of small businesses like thoroughbred trainers through loan subsidies or tax bills that are either lowered or could be paid over a couple of years Have you gotten any sense of what effect those incentives will have in owners keeping horses in training? You know, it's too early to say. I know that the Jockey Club, the TAA, the Agricultural Department here in Kentucky, but I'm sure in other states as well, uh, a large accounting group called Dean Dorton, which is here in Kentucky, uh, Mr. Green has done some articles in the Thurber Daily News, all of those things are being disseminated quickly. I mean, the landscape is changing so fast right now. That question probably, if you ask me in two weeks, I'll have some more precise answers to that. But clearly, there have been some significant uh, federal efforts in particular to address any number of things from wages and lost employment to small business loans and the like. And there are a number of things that are applicable to the industry. I know that TAA just sent out some updates that came from a recent conference that was held. It was a telephone conference that was held yesterday afternoon. So in two weeks, I'll be able to answer that more precisely if you want to revisit. But right now, I know there's a lot of moving parts in that regard. We might just do that. 
So the bottom line here, if I'm an owner who's wavering on whether I can afford to keep my horse in training right now, or if I'm pretty set on retiring the horse, let's just hypothetically say that it's later in the year and the pipeline is getting overloaded, what should I do? Well, there is marketplaces that that hopefully will be open later in the year. Um, you know that Keeneland, in particular, Keeneland has a mixed sale of horses in training, not only brood stock, mares and foals and stallions, stallion candidates at that point, but also they have sales geared for horses just in that scenario. Say they're a filly, they may have broodmare potential, maybe not, maybe they have further racetrack potential, those sales have not been compromised yet, and that's traditionally what the marketplace does. They move them to the sale area in Kentucky. Of course, there's it's huge sale, and the distribution across the country is extensive. Uh, people, and I'm sure you've been to the sale, but people from all over the country, you know, Wyoming, Oklahoma, uh, New Mexico, will come to that sale for broodstock, and or racehorses. That's always there. And of course, a lot of horses will be retired and aren't retired every year. Thousands are retired to the production world and the Kentucky farms. There is, of course, a private marketplace as well, looking for horses in particular that are sound that can be retrained. I know we had a horse several years ago that ended up in a retraining program and was a police horse in Washington, D.C. for 12 years before he was retired from that occupation and ended up finding himself in a farm in Vermont. He was a multiple grade two placed horse named Majesty's Darby. So there are mechanisms. I mean, the, the one thing about the industry is that it's always very dynamic. And if you think about it, racetracks, they have meets, they come and they go. There's a geographic uh, dispersion of horses on a constant basis in the ordinary course. Now, this is, of course, extraordinary because much of this is happening simultaneously. Uh, and indeed, Keeneland would be open normally this weekend and would have seen a huge influx of horses coming out of the south, which is not going to happen, and New York is shut down, and of course we know the consequences of that. But I think you can't sell short the dynamic quality of the industry anyway. The connection with farms, I know we've had a couple of horses, for example, come off the racetrack recently uh, with people saying, I'm not sure where we're going to go, so can you just keep it at the farm and withhold it from training for 30 days or 60 days, as the case may be, until we see how this plays out. So there is this rural connection. Most racetracks are being held open. That's not to say it's financially any easier for those owners or owner trainers that have stock that can't be in the revenue stream, but it's not something that is foreign to the thoroughbred industry, and every owner knows that. Every trainer has gone through boom and bust cycles, and this is just a nice collective, I shouldn't say nice, it's a collective bust cycle that the temperament of a horseman and horsewomen are honestly fairly used to. A lot to think about as we all move forward through these uncharted waters. Well, thank you so much, Mr. Phillips, for giving us something to think about as we all try to find a way to lift our spirits. 
Well, let's, uh, let's visit again in a couple of weeks, and we'll, we'll see where the winds are taking us. Our thanks once again to John Phillips of the TAA. The Kentucky Derby's rescheduling brings back into play some horses whose dreams of winning for various reasons were clipped. Maxfield's win in the Breeders' Futurity at Keeneland last October was brilliant. Then he suffered an ankle chip. Brad Cox, a native of Louisville, was finally set to start his first derby horse in Mr. Monomoy. But the winner of the first division of the Risen Star chipped an ankle, which Cox thought would leave his derby plans destroyed. Eight rings is off the board finish and the Breeders' Cup Juvenile left Bob Baffert thinking the horse could use some time. His owners, Starlight Racing, declared eight rings off the derby trail. Four extra months, though, for him could be sublime. And Baffert still has the unraced Cezanne. And don't forget Honor AP, this derby might be more than just who's left. If all the leading contenders stay fit and these others come to hand, this race might have its greatest competitive heft. You can get us on our YouTube channel by searching In The Gate Podcast. You can find us on Stitcher, SoundCloud, TuneIn, the Pink Apple Podcatcher app, and of course in the Listen tab of the ESPN app. For the full In The Gate experience, subscribe now in the Listen tab of the ESPN app. And please take a minute to rate and review the show. Those reviews really help others find us. And with all the time you have at home, feel free to drop a line to the folks at America's Best Racing and let them know directly that you like this podcast. If enough people do it, like Arlo Guthrie sang in Alice's Restaurant, it'll become a movement. And you can follow me on Twitter at B. Abrams Voice or on Facebook at Barry Abrams Voice. That's In The Gate for this week. We hope you're all safe and healthy as you listen to this, and we'll see you next time.